Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. All right, good morning, church. So thankful you're here. So glad to see each and every one of you today. We are nearing the end of our Judges series, and this one... This one, although when I initially read it and was listening to it and read it through several times, I'm like, Lord, I don't know what you have to say to your people on this one this week. But then the more I kind of vegged out on it, if you will, the more I kind of saw something ringing true, some, a theme that was really guiding 17 and 18 of Judges. And we've titled this sermon, Man-Made Religion. And uh, to be honest, culturally, just looking at what we're dealing with as a people, this one, this one really fits well with what we deal with all the time as Americans, what we deal with all the time, with what we're seeing in our community. So I'm so thankful. We've got two left, this one and and next week, and we're finishing up the book of Judges. And what I want you to see in in these next two sermons is the way that Judges started was with two, basically two introduction uh, uh, sections, and now it's ending with two conclusion sections. And it's, it's really letting us know this has been a case study on what happens when people uh, do things their own way and there is no king. This is the repetitive phrase of this, this whole book, if you will, is the people did what was right in their own eyes. They did what they wanted, and there was no king in Israel. There was no king physically, but there's also no king spiritually. They are doing as they please. Now, unlike the earlier chapters, and we've been dealing with judge after judge, 12 judges in all, some of them, a lot was spoken of them, and some of them not so much. We just finished up with Samson. And every one of these sections talked about oppression. It talked about foreign invaders. It talked about foreign uh, religions. It, 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 there was this theme, if you will, of uh, the, the people mess up, they fall into despair, they're oppressed, then they repent, then the Lord rescues them, and there's a very brief season of peace, and they kind of get it right, briefly. This, however, the way that Judges ends, is now we're starting to see the people are just broken, in desperate need, <laughs> in desperate need of a king, but more than that, in desperate need of the one true king, of a savior, of a judge who's not imperfect. You really see this coming true And now what's different about these last several chapters is there's no more foreign oppressors. No, the enemy now is within. The most dangerous enemy, if you will. You'll notice as we finish this, this is some of the most brutal, bloody, awful stuff in the Bible. In fact, next week I would argue it's one of the most just nasty sections of Scripture, if you will. But it's in there, so we're going to cover it. And this is what you see that now that the, the oppression, the enemy is within... This is the most dangerous time for Israel. There's no more judges. Israel is on its own. There's, there's really almost no editorial comments. The narrator, who is most likely here, Samuel, uh, who's writing the book of Judges, makes very little editorial comment. He leaves the reader, if you will, with the burden of interpretation. We're sitting here going, why is this in here? What does it mean to me? What do I do with this? It's actually kind of a common theme if you look at the teaching styles of ancient rabbis. If you even look at the teaching style of Jesus himself, he would often say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is, he would then tell a very difficult teaching, a very difficult parable, that we would just kind of have to rest on and think about. And maybe it took his disciples, takes us a little bit of time to go, what are you trying to say here, God? The same is true here in the judges' passages. And lastly, the Israelites here are no longer being accused of worshiping foreign gods as before. 
Now it's much more dangerous. They are mixing pagan religion now with the worship of Yahweh. They are beginning now to worship the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord of Lords, the way they want rather than the way he wants. And this is a scary thing. Tim Keller, when writing on this, Brother Keller is with the Lord Jesus now. I don't know if y'all heard that. He just passed away about a week or so ago. He wrote, fundamentally, the faith of God's people is a revealed faith. God reveals himself in his word. We do not discover him through our reason and our experience. In short, God says, worship me as I am, not as you want me to be. And worship me as my heart directs, not as your heart suggests. Now, I wonder something, church. You might be thinking, I don't know if this has anything to do with me, but I think every one of us deals with this on some level, some more than others. How often have you heard someone say, or maybe you've even said yourself, you know, my God, my God is a God of love, not judgment. Or or you might say, God is full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. He would never send anyone to hell. You've heard that said. Maybe you've thought that. Or maybe you've heard people say, you know, we, we really prayed about this. Now, I know the Bible describes this as sin, this temptation, but we've really prayed about it, and God has given us a peace about it. Well, I can tell you right now, that peace ain't from, from the Lord. I don't know where that peace is coming from. Or from some other groups. According to Barna, in fact, it says that more and more people are willing to say they're spiritual but not religious. I, I don't need to be a part of a church to worship God. I prefer worshiping Him in my own way. There's a piece of that that we understand. There is, you know, where, you know what happens in church? People show up. And you know where people are? There's madness. There's a little bit of chaos where people are. And yet we're still called to that. We're called into the fellowship of believers. And guess what you bring to the table? A little bit of your own chaos. A little bit of your own mess. So don't think, oh, if I just do church by myself, I'll be okay. No, you brought your mess there too. And God's going to show up in a powerful way. Some may even say, this makes me happy. I know that my God wants me to be happy. No, he wants you to have joy. Happiness is something else. It comes and goes. Do you know what all of these things have in common? They are statements of man-made, man-centered religion. A buffet religion. And we Americans love a good buffet, right? I'll take a little bit of this. I like this Jesus when he heals. I like this Jesus when he saves. I don't like this Jesus so much when he turns over tables in the temple. I don't know who that Jesus is. I like this Jesus when he's out helping people and healing the sick. And I don't like him as much, though, when he says, unless you eat of my body and drink my flesh. Like that blew the people's minds. Like, what are you talking about? Understand that this Jesus is a full expression of God, not just a little piece. And God is both loving, merciful. He's also just. He's Savior. And he's also judge. All of this is true at once. So we can't have a buffet We already have this wonderful buffet in front of us. Faith in God as he reveals himself, not the way you desire it. In Judges 17 and 18, this is Israel's main struggle. They won't buffet God now. We're tired of what God wants. We want to do it our way. They began to follow a man-made religion that totally displeased God. 
And we can understand this too. How man-made religion displeases God. I'm going to take a few shots over the bow at some stuff today. If you get mad at me, I don't really care. Um, I, I believe what I'm about to tell you about some of the things that are man-made religions that we are falling prey to. The text is going to give us three re- reasons, I believe, why man-made religion displeases God. Now, I'm going to read some text to you today. If you've been on this journey, you know we haven't missed a, we haven't missed a word yet, and we're not going to start now. We're in Judges chapter 17. This story is really amazing. So listen in. We'll read a little bit, pause, and read a little more. There was a man, this is verse 1, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it into my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my my son by the Lord. And he he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, Now I I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and metal image. Now notice something weird is going on here. She has dedicated the silver to the Lord. The word Lord there is Yahweh. To make a graven image. So this isn't an image of Baal or Ashtaroth or some of the gods we've been dealing with. No, this is a carved image of Yahweh, which God does not want or require. Okay, so this is this syncretistic, man-made. It's a little bit of God, but a little bit of weird. All right? That's what's happening here. And it was in the house of Micah, verse 5. And the man Micah made a shrine, had a shrine, and he made an ephod, which is the priestly garments and household gods. And guess what he did? He ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Now guess what? Priests are supposed to be from the house of Levi. An Ephraimite cannot have a priest. All right, but I want, I want buffet God. My boy, he's pretty good. He could be a priest. Verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 7, now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And, okay. And he sojourned there, which means he's temporarily there. He's not staying. Verse 8, the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, well, I'm I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, hey, 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 stay with me. And be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest. And was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know, now I know that the Lord will prosper me. Because I have a Levite as a priest. Okay. Well, his son got the boot. I mean, just you can infer that. All of a sudden, well, you know, he, you're not quite a Levite. Sorry, buddy. Now I've got my own Levite. And now I know the Lord's going to prosper me because I've set up my own house of worship and I have my own priest. Okay. Let's stop there for a moment. 
Why man-made religion displeases God. You know what we notice here? We don't see the Lord speaking yet. We don't see what he's up to. But here's what's happening behind the scenes. Man is doing whatever is right in his own eyes rather than God's. Man-made religion displeases God. Let's, let's take a second and pray for Brother Tom. I don't know what's going on there, but obviously he's having, he's having trouble today. Let's pray for him. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we don't know what the reason is for this right now, Lord, but uh, be, with, be with our brother Tom, um, who's uh, he's 88, I believe. Um, and so he's been with us a long time. And we, we ask now, Lord, would you be with him right now as he's about to head to the doctor? Um, give them wisdom as they handle uh, whatever he's dealing with right now, Lord, give him healing right now. I pray he feels better uh, very soon. Lord, be with him. Guide those doctors. Guide everyone in the process. And be with Brother Tom. Give him peace and comfort right now. We love you. We know you are in charge and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to attempt to continue. Um, can you all get back on with me? Can we? All right, let's, let's try it. Um, our hearts are with Brother Tom right now. So here's, here's what we're dealing with here in the first section of Judges chapter 17. Why man-made religion displeases God. First, it's because it does whatever is right in its own eyes rather than God's eyes. It does what's right in its own eyes rather than God's eyes. Look at, look at verse 6. Verse 6, if you will, is really the key passage for the entire book of Judges. And it's repetitive. It repeats itself several times. But the first time we really see it clearly put is right here in verse 6 where it says, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. People are beginning to do what they please. This is, this is indicative of not just their culture, but our culture. Really, that, that is, if you could put our culture into a nutshell, it would be this. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. In fact, nowadays, truth is irrelevant. It's more objective. Whatever you think is true for you is true. I mean, we live in this society, really, that is so much like the book of Judges, it's wild. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And you've got this guy named Micah, who's now doing his own thing. He begins his life by stealing from his mother. Did y'all catch that? Don't miss that. This is the dude we're following right now, Micah. Now, I've known some Micahs. I just got to admit, the name means pretty cool thing. It means who is like God. And yet this Micah is kind of a turd, to be honest. He's not the greatest. He's stealing from his own mother. And guess what he does? He gives it back when he finds out his mother has cursed him. He, he, he's not willing to give the money back prior. He's one of these, I'll, I'll, I'll apologize when it's convenient or when it's inconvenient to be caught. And so now his mother, who is a strange character too, moves from cursing him to now blessing him. So she's maybe an enabler, if you will. And she calls on the covenantal name of God and, and, and swears by this and then makes an idol towards him. Now, why is this a problem? We've got to go back to Exodus. We've got to go back to Deuteronomy to see why this is even a big deal. Why is this a thing that she's made a carved image and why is that a problem? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 8 repeats the second commandment where it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. It goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 27 to say, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. Look, God does not want this. To make a carved image for God is completely mad. It makes no sense. He says, this is an abomination. I absolutely do not want this. 
Now, it makes you ask this question. Why does God care so much about this? Why does he care that we don't make idols, that we don't make images of him? And this kind of, this is something that's a little touchy, but let me touch on it, all right? There, there are many, many Christian religions of the world that have these things called icons. And I would argue that's a very, very dangerous place to play. To be making things that are pictures of God, of, of the saints, and to be worshiping them as if they were something more than an image. They're not. Why does God not want this? Because God is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful to say that, oh, I need to come and bow before this thing that implies who God is to me is foolishness. God is above. God is more. So to limit him to a graven image is beneath him. Now, maybe there's other reasons that God could explain as to why he hates this, but that's where I believe this comes from. And now there's this Levite, and both of them have the same problem. We have a traveling Levite. Why is he in Judah? The Bible doesn't tell us. Why is he journeying? He should be, and the Bible is, chapter 18 is going to reveal this at the very end, that he should be in Shiloh. The house of the Lord is in Shiloh. There's one place where Israel should be worshiping. Instead, this Levite's traveling a while and doing what? What's he looking for? He's looking for a place to stay. He's looking to make a name for himself. He's a lot like Micah. We almost get a two-part story here of, I'm just going to do things my way. I'm going to find my way in the world. I don't care so much. Yeah, I'm a Levite, but I don't care what God wants for me. I don't care that he wants me serving here. I'm going to go make my own path. And Micah brings him in and offers him a family. You can be, you can be like a father to us, which is crazy because it says the Bible says he's a young man which is problematic already, just so you know. I'm giving you a lot of background. A Levite's not supposed to start serving as a priest until he's 30. And you would never call a man below or above 30 a young man, not biblically speaking. And so he's not even of the age to be a priest yet. And now the, Micah says, hey, you can come be like a father to me. How? How is that possible? He offers him a job. He offers him a salary, 10 pieces of silver. He offers him clothing, room and board, insurance. There's probably a 401k involved. I mean, he's got the whole package. Levi's like, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I'm trying to do with my life. I don't want to be where my parents are. I don't want to be in Shiloh. I don't want to do what the Lord wants. I want to do what's best, I think, for me. And Micah says, well... Now that I've got all this great stuff, now that I've got the temple set up, I've got the altar right, I've got the ephod, I've even got a Levite priest. Now I know God has got me. I'm going to prosper. This is the key word of this, this opening chapter. Prosperity. I want to prosper. Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. This reminds me of what Jesus said. If you really love Christ, if you really want to follow him, you'll obey his commandments. He says in John Chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now imagine, a lot of you in here have probably heard of this, this thing that's gaining momentum that you might call the progressive gospel. The progressive gospel, the progressive movement is, is taking our, our nation by storm. But inside of Christianity, there's this own version of 
progressive gospel. Let me define it for you for a moment if you're not sure what this is. It's marked by a denial of original sin. Man is not innately evil as the Bible describes. Uh, However, the Bible is pretty specific that after Adam and Eve did what they did, and Romans goes on to say, for the wages of sin is death, that man is born into sin. There's so much we could unpack there. They deny all of that. Many even deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the very existence of hell. They're they're more interested in aligning with cultural norms regarding same-sex marriage or abortion. it's, It's a pathway, a gospel pathway to imitate culture rather than imitate Christ. It's a what's true for you is true for you attitude. Now you've run into this a lot, I imagine. And maybe you've even run into this among Christian brothers and sisters. This, however, is a man-made gospel. It's a buffet gospel that says, I like this Jesus. I like this idea of a Jesus who saves. But if you remove original sin, if you remove the atonement of Christ, then just know this, friends. Jesus is completely unnecessary. This leads almost immediately to what we would call universalism, which means everybody's good. Everybody's going. If there's no hell, what is there to fear? We're all going. This is simply not so. It's simply a lie and a very dangerous path. It's not the true gospel. Actually, the true gospel, I would argue, is better because it's more indicative of what you're really facing. What you observe all the time is that there is good and there is evil. You see it all the time. Some of you are police officers. You see it every day. Some of you are in the medical field. You see it a lot more than some of us. The the, the destruction that people put upon themselves. There's a few of us in the room who maybe don't see evil a lot. But most of us, if you ever turn on the TV, you're aware that there's a problem and there must be some some guiding thing that's causing all of this destruction. Right or wrong, there's truth. And these are what God says they are, not what seems right in our eyes. It would seem, regardless of where you come to this, that there are just things in our, in our natural order that makes sense. I would argue it's because there's a creator and we are his creation. That there's biological differences. There's, this world operates in a certain way. You, you can't make the sky anything but blue. It's, it's that way. The grass is green unless it's dead and then it's brown. It's, there's just these innate truths. And now more and more what we're seeing in our culture and our society is what's true for you is true for you completely opposed to the gospel. Now, what do we do with that? Do we go out and say, well, you guys are nuts. Stay away from us. No, in fact, the opposite is true. What they need is truth. (laughs) What they need to see is, you know what? There is a better way. That actually answers your questions better because we all have deep, deep questions, deep concerns. There's a void. C.S. Lewis says there's a a void in the heart. That's a God-sized void, and the only way to fill it is with Him. And all of us are asking these questions like, why is this happening? What does it mean? What happens next? What happens when I die? There's all these really difficult questions, and the truth, the gospel truth in Jesus is the answer. But not if we make it whatever we want it. This is a very dangerous path that we find ourselves on as a church. And let us not think we're we're above it. We We can have processes like this where... Tradition begins to be more important than the gospel. 
Every church can be guilty of this, where we start to say, hey, you know, when we celebrate this, it has to have candles and it has to have, and let's make sure at, at you know, at Easter time, we, we put the right stuff on the cross and, and we start worrying so much. And then eventually we become the kind of church that says, you know, I don't know why this carpet is blue. If we were really Christians, we'd probably make it white. I mean, everybody get white carpet? But it's purity. No, let's make it red like the blood of Jesus. Like we could get so whacked out about it. And it wouldn't be that uncommon. Let me keep going in Judges chapter 18 because the story just gets stranger. Hallelujah. Verse 1, chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. No king. It's reminding of this. And in those days, the tribe of, of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Now, that's not completely true, just so you know. There was an allotment for the tribe of Dan. They were just too weak or too, uh, too desperate to, to seek the Lord. They, or they weren't desperate enough to seek the Lord to help them there. They had an allotment that uh, had Philistine camps in it. But they were unwilling to fight. Even though, just so you know, Dan coming into the promised land had the second largest military force. And yet they were fearful and not courageous enough to take what God had given So the Bible records it this way. They believed they had no inheritance. Verse 2. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah, from Eshtael, to spy out the land to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Here's that dude again. And they lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and they said to him, who brought you here? What, what are you doing in this place? What, what is your business here? And he said to them, this is, this is how Micah has dealt with me. He, he's hired me. I have become his priest. And they said to him, well, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, listen to this. This, is, this will give you great confidence. Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Okay, God's watching. Is God intervening? Is God, is God going to show up? No, no, no. Go in peace. God's watching. Did you know that you don't have to be a Levite priest to tell somebody that? You, any one of you can say, you know, I believe there's a God, and so therefore God is watching. Woohoo! Good job, Levite. But these people were so desperate for a good word that they, when they departed, they came to to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, What do you report? Listen to their answer. Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. (laughs) Now, I don't know where they get this, for God has given it into our hands, a place where there is no lack for anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Ashtael and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is now called Mahanedan to this very day. And behold, it was west of Kiriath-Jerim. 
And they passed on and from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Let's pause there. Now Dan is so much like Micah, so much like the Levite priest. And here's what you see happening now. Man-made religion displeases God because it seeks to use God rather than serve Him. First point was, it does what's right in their own eyes rather than God's. Here it seeks to use God rather than to serve Him. Now here's a couple of things that are true. You can pop up this map for me really quick. Here's what's happening. I know this is kind of small. You can look these up on Google if you will. But they're down south. You see Dan hopefully with your uh, magic x-ray vision if you can see that far. But it's close to the Mediterranean Sea on on that side there. And they're moving all the way to the very tip top north of of the nation. And this is where they're going. This is where they're heading. They have not fulfilled their their, uh, allotment that God had gave them. So they're moving out. And now they're seeing it as, okay, we don't have an inheritance. God has sent us. We heard from this Levite priest who said, hey, God's watching. you got to be really hungry for just your, your best answer to take that and go, okay, that's clearly a sign from God. Like when you read in the scriptures sometimes, and you have to admit this, my friends, when you're searching through there, God, give me an answer. I've got some really difficult things. And you read something like, you know, God's watching. Well, that's a yes. That is, that is a yes. I should marry her. Dude, please don't let that be the reason you just got married. God's watching? Come on. There's some better places to go. In fact, Proverbs says the counsel of many is wisdom. Maybe go ask your parents. Maybe go ask your friends, what do you think of her? Well, dude, I'm glad you asked. She's the worst. Okay? I've not been seeing it that way. You know, your friends, they, if they're really true friends, they love you more. Hopefully, they love you enough to tell you the truth. Your parents, hopefully, will tell you the truth. I'm not sure, son. This is what Samson's parents a few weeks ago told him. They said, hey, look, I don't think she's right for you. Shouldn't you choose from the people of God rather than go and be yoked to a non-believer? This is what a good Christian mom and dad would say. Hey, son. Hey, daughter. They don't appear to be walking with Christ. I don't have a problem with how they look. I don't have a problem of where they came from. But do they walk with Jesus? That is the number one. I don't know. This is a sidebar. I, I, I don't know how you're trying to help your kids choose. But if that's not number one, you're failing. It's just that obvious, okay? I want to know that my son or daughter is seeing someone who loves Jesus first. And then I might talk about, well, you know, he's kind of a nerd, all right? But I can overlook nerd if they love Jesus. Eh, he's kind of, you know, he gets on my nerves a little bit, but it seems that he loves Christ. I can overlook that he gets on my nerves a little bit. And maybe, you know what's happened to me over time? I find that sometimes people in, in church, sometimes Christians in general, they get on my nerves. Sometimes I need to grow up. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes they do. Maybe we can change together. Hallelujah. Do they love Christ? This is what's happening here. They inquire of God, and God is not even speaking. He's not spoken yet. We see the displeasure of God in the fact that they're not obeying His commands. But God has not spoken. God did not say, Dan, leave the land I gave you. Never happened. God did not say, go up north and attack these people who are unsuspecting, who have done you no harm, who are innocent. God never said it. In fact, I have full confidence that had the people of Dan just said, God... We are scared of our neighbors that you have said we must, dis- we, m- we must put out 
that we must take this land and get rid of the Philistines who are primarily here. But we're afraid of them and their iron chariots and their metalworks. God, help us. Send us a Savior. God, give us strength. Show us how God would have showed up. Because this is what God gave. That's not what they do. They say, oh, we can figure this out. Let's just move our entire tribe. Let's get out of here. I don't know who that's for. Maybe some of us in the room are running from something that God never said, run away from that. He said, run towards it. And you're afraid or, or whatever, but... Ask of the Lord, hey God, what do you want? This is not what Dan, the Danites are doing. Instead of approaching Yahweh, they approach this young man Levite who's in the wrong place. And say, hey, give us a good word. God's watching. Hallelujah. Then I think we can do it. God had not given this. God is not some kind of Santa Claus church. This is not the God we serve. Following Jesus, it means... Something else other than financial gain. It means something else other than some inheritance. Now God can give you those things, sure. But that's not his main intent. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now let me take another shot today. I've shot at some of those Eastern Orthodox kind of religions with their icons. I took a shot at the progressive gospel. Let me now take a shot at the prosperity gospel. Which is in direct violation of 1 Timothy 6. Is just like the Danites. This, this is the belief that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God. That faith and positive speech and donations to certain religious causes will result in health and wealth and prosperity. I have a problem with that. It's this. It's like all of this. I don't even have to go to one place. Explain to me, please, someone like Daniel. Explain to me, please, someone like David. How in the world, help me understand Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Help me understand Jesus. Help me understand the disciples. Paul, I can't find a character that the Bible makes much of that was so prosperous their whole life with no lows. Never had to struggle with illness. Never had persecution. Never had conflict. This makes no sense to say that Jesus himself, and the argument will often be, you don't have enough faith, that's why you're not being healed. You don't have enough faith, that's why your budget's not working out. You're telling me the Apostle Paul did not have enough faith? That Jesus himself, not enough faith to withstand the persecution of the Pharisees? This is problematic. And at the end, I guess just personally, I don't understand why this pastor needs a Bentley. I just don't get it. And maybe that's a particular shot. I don't know. When I, I just don't even want one. I'm just, this morning, guess what I did? I woke up, turned the key on my Ford F-150, and the sucker didn't even start. And I said to the Lord, I don't know what you want today. I don't, I don't know what you want today. Uh, it's a 2015. I'm really happy. I, I've always wanted a truck. And when I bought that truck, I was like, Lord, I feel guilty for buying this truck. Because I'm on the opposite end of this. of like, I don't want you. And I don't mean this ill. I don't want you to think that I'm about the money. Hopefully you know that. I don't know if you're aware of what I make. It's public knowledge for all the members in this church. You can find out. It ain't a lot. But I don't do it for that reason. I didn't come here for that reason. 
So I felt guilty. And this morning, <laughs> thing don't crank, I tell my wife, all right, I'm taking the minivan to church. I'll come back and get you in a little while. And there's a piece of that that's a reminder. You know what? I don't need this stuff. I, I I'm not doing it for that reason. I don't know. Today, Brother Tom is, is ill. There's, some, there's a lot going on this morning. I, I, I plugged onto the computer and half the stuff I needed were not there on the Google Drive. So I had to build these sermon slides. If they're wrong, I built them this morning because they weren't there. I don't know. I don't know if this sermon's any good, but something was wanting us to not do it. This prosperity gospel is dangerous. It is, not, it is a man-made gospel. It's not the true gospel. The true gospel is even better because it's real. Because guess what, my friends? Sometimes you get sick. Sometimes people do, don't like you because you follow Christ. It hap- it's going to happen more and more. Sometimes your budget doesn't work out, and it's not because you made a mistake. It's because for some reason your truck wouldn't start, and it's something worse than a battery. Did you do that? Well, you know, if you'd maintain everything, I don't know. Maybe it is not enough maintenance from Pastor Jonathan. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes things go wrong, and it's not because you're faithless. It's because God is faithful and wants to show you something through the process. And pain is sometimes involved. If Jesus said, hey, you abide in me, I'm going to prune the branches sometimes. I'm going to prune the stuff that's not quite right. Guess what? (laughs) Sometimes you got some rough edges, and when he prunes them, that don't feel great. But then you look better on the other side. You can bear real fruit. And maybe he'll prosper you. I understand this. Here's what God does. He always blesses. It just doesn't always look the way you thought. I think the greatest blessing, and and this might sound prideful, but it's the Lord, not me. The greatest blessing on my family is not that we're wealthy. We're not. The greatest blessing on my family is that generation after generation is following Jesus Christ. And that there's people in ministry. I would take that. Friend, I trust, trust me when I say this. I don't want wealth. I just want to know my kids love Jesus. Amen. I just want to know that. Let's finish Judges together. This is where the story gets weird. It's been weird already, but here we go. Verse 14. Then the five men who had gone out to scout the country of Laish, they said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod? And you know that in these houses, there's household gods and a carved image and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what, what you will do. And they turned aside there, and they came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with the weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. Wow, that's, that's a scary thing to show up at your house. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land, they went up and they entered and took the carved image. They stole the ephod. They stole the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when they went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. <laughs> Isn't it better for you to be a priest of a, of a whole tribe rather than the, the house of one man? Be a priest of our tribe and our clan in Israel. Hey, you're getting a promotion, dude. You're just with one little guy now. You can be with a whole clan. Verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and he went along with the people. So they turned and they departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. 
Why would they do that? Well, here's why. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out. And they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you have come with such a company? (laughs) These people are a wreck. In verse 24, he said, Micah said to them, You take my gods that I made, and you took my priest, and you just go away, and what what have I now left? And then do you ask me, what is the matter with me? The people of Dan then said to him this, Wow, things turn quick. Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. The people of God are now threatening one another over stuff that God doesn't even want. Verse 26, Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home, tucked his tail and ran. Verse 27, The people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests that belonged to him, and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named that city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, ha, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests of the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. That, when that appeared in my text this week, I went, I promise, God, I'm just doing what you tell me. I, I, I'm not trying to roll with the Danites. Verse 31, they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Verse 31 is really the key to ending this section. God is making a note. The, the, the narrator here, likely Samuel, is making the note. Guess what? There was already a place of worship. Ephraim, Micah, what are they doing? Dan, now they're coming and making their own temple. This is not what God required. There's already a house of the Lord. There's already Levite priests there. Here's the last and final thing. i got to move. Because it makes God in its own image rather than believing His revealed word. Verse 24, Micah complains and whines. It's like, you took the gods that I made and you took my priest. I have nothing left. I have nothing left. That's a sad thing. That's a, a sad thing for one of the people of God to say, you took my gods. Here's the good news. Here's the great news about our God, about Jesus Christ. Nothing can take him away from you. He's not a graven image that could be moved in this way. And once you have him, nothing, nothing can remove him. In fact, God himself says, Jesus himself, nothing, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are mine. Nothing can snatch you. You, I I have you in my hands and the Father has me in his hands. Nothing can snatch you out of my grasp. But here they've made God into their own images, into their own thing. Why? Ephraim, here's what's really sad. Ephraim, if you look at the map again, Micah, he's, he's a short distance away from Shiloh. Shiloh is in Ephraim. And the dude's like, I, just, I don't want to walk down the road. I'd rather worship in my own house. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. But we've got to admit, 
The past couple of years, we've been making some weird decisions as church culture. I'll just stay at home in my PJs and worship. Is it the same? I'm not so sure. It seems kind of like Micah. It seems to be a little out, 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 of, the, out of the pale here. Beyond the pale. He's... He's now making things in his own image. He's setting up carved him. The people, the people here now, Dan has stolen this stuff and they're feeling real proud. We've got our own priest. Hey, this Levite got a massive promotion. He's glad. Everybody's just doing what's best for them. Yeah, Micah gets put out. He's so sad. I don't have God anymore. It's foolish. And they show up in Laish and murder all these people. The Bible is wild. Just attack this city. It was easy. They were unsuspecting. Look how good the land is and wiped them out. And rebuilt the city right where it was and named it Dan. <laughs> I find his tribal name to be the most unusual of all. Dan? I don't know. Do y'all ever just laugh every once in a while when you read the Bible? We've got Reuben and we've got Naphtali and we've got Asher and Dan? Where'd that white guy come from in that mix? It's weird. They named the city Dan. How proud they are. Look what we've accomplished. We didn't even ask God and we still pulled it off. And now we don't even need Shiloh. That's where the Ephraimites go to worship. We don't need Shiloh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God said that's where he's putting his Levites. That's where the tabernacle is. I know that's where the Ark of the Covenant is, but who cares? We've got graven images with 200 pieces of silver, which just so you know, wouldn't make all that majestic of a thing we got our own priest now, this roaming priest who was for some reason in Judah. Oh, wow. Why is this story in the Bible? Well, there's a couple of reasons that are just textually true. First of all, it explains why Dan is where it is later when you read about Dan. The tribe moved. This is where it's at. More than that, though, it shows how corrupt Israel has gotten. That now they are syncretizing their religion. So much like American Christianity. I didn't even speak on this today. And I don't want this to offend anybody in here. Because this is more likely what would offend you. Is that we've made Christianity nationalistic. And that's not a thing. That's not true. You know Jesus isn't an American. He's not. He's also not a European. He was a Middle Eastern. But he's resurrected. He's heaven. He's none of these things. He's not Israeli. Yeah, he was Jewish, but he is God. My Christianity is not American. Now, don't get me wrong. I served in the military for 10 years. I'm proud of my country. I'm proud of the patriots. I'm proud, not the New England patriots. I'm not a fan. I'm proud to be patriotic. Marcus, I know. I love you, brother, still. I know. No, no, no offense to you there, buddy, but... But Christianity is not American. And sometimes we synchronize those two things together. That happens more often. If it's not progressive, if it's not prosperity, you'll go to an evangelical church and you can't tell the difference between the flag and the cross. And there's a problem there. It explains also here how Dan and Ephraim became one of the two sites for Jeroboam. This is later in 1 Kings where he sets up two golden calves. He sets up one in Bethel, which is Ephraim. Probably near Micah's house. And then also one in Dan where we've just arrived. So that this thing became a sin for all the people, First Kings. And then this wild thing happens in Revelation. And I can't tell you this for certain because no one knows this for certain. But it says in Revelation chapter 5 
uh, it describes there in verses 7 and 8. You can look at this later this week if you want. But Revelation 5, 7, and 8 describes 144,000 Jews who believe in the last days of the tribulation. And it says 12,000 from each tribe. Now, I would encourage you to go back and look at those tribes. You won't see Dan. What in the world happened there? Guess what else you won't see? Ephraim. You'll see Levi suddenly getting a, a, a tribal allotment. He's never gotten that before. Levi is suddenly in the book of Revelation. And instead of Ephraim, it says the house of Joseph. Now, no one knows for certain, but I think perhaps this is the beginning of their complete and utter falling away from God. That now, now even in the last days, there are none from those tribes who will believe because they have completely fallen away. Now, maybe, maybe that's a, a bridge too far. I don't know. But it seems so. Why is this mention of Shiloh at the very end? Why is this place of rest? Shiloh has a similar uh, meaning as Shalom, a place of rest, a place of peace. Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will chose. We just, we just read that. We'll choose out of all the tribes. There you shall go. This is the place to worship. Guess what, Christians? We have it even better. We have a one-up on this. Shiloh, yeah, I guess it was a trek to get there if you were down there in Dan, down in Judah, way up north. It took you a little bit of a journey. Guess what? We have Shiloh now, but it isn't the place. This is why for years and years, and I'm so glad this is true because we have to admit we don't have the greatest curb appeal. Some of you, you're visiting. Some of you haven't been here too long. You've got to get by the U-Hauls to get in our church. There's no steeple. This place is interesting. And yet... There are no churches in town that are Shiloh. They may name themselves Shiloh Baptist Church or something like that, but Shiloh is a person. John chapter 4, it says this. Here is Jesus here dealing with the Samaritan woman who's talking and arguing with him that, here's what she says just prior to what I'm about to read. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. They're still arguing over this. We, we, we say you worship on a mountain in Samaria, and you Jews, you worship down in Jerusalem. I got all that. But here's what Jesus said, verse 23. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Where should we go? Where should we find our peace? Jesus. He's our Shiloh. It's the greatest part of chapter 18, right here in verse 31. Where's this truth? Where is this Shiloh? Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 14, 6, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is our Shiloh. He is our Sabbath rest. I don't know what kind of baggage you've brought in here today. How you've been trying to get God to do things your way or see things your way or manipulate Him somehow. Reverse that this morning and just see. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're stressed. I don't know if you're anxious. I don't know if you've got a lot of problems on your plate. You're trying to figure out answers. Maybe you've got a big decision to make soon. And it would be nice if you could go to some graven image or go to some Levite guy and say, Hey, or if you could come up to me and just say, hey, Jonathan, I know, I think you might be a little closer to God. It's not true. We both have Shiloh, same God, same Jesus. You, but, you know, you've got special access. The high priest is Jesus. We're not dealing with this tabernacle system anymore. There are no high priests. 
Christ is our high priest. But you can come to me later and say, I've got this really tough decision. You know, can you talk to God about that? Yeah, I'd love to. I'll talk to God about that. But he may give me this much. God's watching. I'm not hearing from him, but I know he's in charge. And I know he loves you. Instead of coming to me, instead of going to some place, instead of looking for something in a book, or unless it's this book, or unless it's on your knees in prayer, go to Shiloh. Jesus, go to him. I've got, a tough, I've got a tough decision to make. I, I don't know what to do with this relationship. I'm brokenhearted. Go to Shiloh. Go to Jesus. Decide now. All of us must bring what we believe about God and about ourselves. We have to bring this before the Lord. Say, all right, I've been, I've been a mess on this, God. I've been just praying. I've been treating you like Santa Claus. I've been just, this is all I do. I'm looking for how I might use you rather than how I might worship you. That's why I love that last song we sang. Is I'm going to come with worship even when I don't feel like it. Even when I'm afraid, even when I'm brokenhearted, I'm coming with my worship and I'm asking you to change my heart. Because the problem is not you, it's me. Change my heart so that I might begin to say, okay, God, your will be done, not my own. I'm not here to use you. I'm here to worship you. I'm not here to get what I can get out of it. I just want you. That's a holier place to be. That's, that's what true Christianity really is. It's not coming to the Father to see what I could get, but coming to him because he's the Father and because we love him, because we're thankful in spite of what's going on. Decide to do what's right in God's eyes rather than your own. Decide to seek to serve God rather than use Him. And pull your affections off your idols and put them on the one true God. Let's pray now together, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are to us. I Yet again, I lift up our brother Tom right now. I don't know what he's facing today. Would you heal his body? I pray a, a quick recovery for him today. Be with those who are ministering to him in a physical way right now. But Lord, you do the spiritual component. Be with his family. Give them peace and comfort. Lord, be with us now as we're so thankful for who you are to us, that you are a God of love and mercy, also a God who is just. You are all of this and more. You are, in, you are beyond our understanding. But what little we know from your word and what little we have seen, we know that you love us and you are good. And even in spite of the, the harm we cause, you still sacrifice for us. You still show us mercy. And that's amazing. Your love for us is beyond compare. And I'm asking now, Lord, would you help us to just come to your table, to come before you out of a sense of sonship, out of a sense of adoption as your sons and daughters. Not because we need something, although we do. We have great need. We have great decisions. We have difficult times. And God, you're happy to hear them and happy to move in our lives. But God, I'm asking, would you do something so much more? Help us to be hungry for you just for your presence, just because you're worthy. Help us to praise you because you're worthy, not because we're looking for something to get out of it. Help us to serve you because we love you, not because we're hoping to use you. I don't want this to be my relationship with you, God, and it's not what you desire. You desire my whole heart. It's, we have this very small picture of this in, in marriage where what we really want from that person is their, their true love. None of us really wants a 50-50 relationship. Oh, I'll do just enough to see how much they'll give in return. That is a difficult place to find yourself in a relationship.
And yet that's the very way we treat God sometimes. Lord, help us with that. I want you for you and nothing more. I want you because you're worth it and nothing more. And God, you choose. You choose for me my path. You will for me what you, how you would want to bless me. If you want to give, if you want to take, I am yours. If you want to take me through a valley that I might praise you in it, if you want to take me over a mountain that I might glorify you through it, God, you choose. I am yours. I just want to know you better every day. Would you do that in your people? Help us to love you and know you all the more every day. And then use us in this city, in this very broken place, in this broken community, that we would be the people of God, lighthouses in our neighborhoods in this community, that people would begin to see you through us. Do that, Lord Jesus, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.